Hi, everyone. My name is Wilson Shirley, and welcome to the American Enterprise Institute's The Bradley Lectures, a new series on the AEI podcast channel. Carlin Bowman introduced this series, and I'm delighted to start it officially with Human Flourishing and Human Excellence, the truths of Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics with a look at Winston Churchill. This lecture was originally given in January 2015 by Dr. Leon Cass. We decided to start this series with Dr. Cass's lecture for a few reasons. First, even though this lecture is on the longer side, Cass's lecture is a succinct and clear explanation of both Aristotle's ethics and its answers to fundamental questions about what constitutes a life well lived. Second, Aristotle's answers guide the work of so much of what we do here at AEI, especially and most clearly the work on happiness of our colleagues Charles Murray and Arthur Brooks. And finally, Cass closes with a familiar story about Winston Churchill that is really the ethics in action. It's a reminder of what greatness in times much more trying than our own looks like and what challenging times require of citizens and especially of leaders. One other great thing about this lecture is that even though its themes are timeless, they take on new relevance with what's been going on in the world over the last few years. Dr. Cass couldn't have known what was going to happen in American politics after January of 2015, but if you listen carefully, you'll hear ideas and even people that have taken on new meaning since then. And with that, here's Dr. Leon Cass on human flourishing and human excellence, the truths of Aristotle's Nicomachean ethics with a look at Winston Churchill. Why in the world a lecture at the American Enterprise Institute on Aristotle's Nicomachean ethics? Even I'm amazed and more than a little amused at the prospect of giving such a lecture. But the idea came to me because of the work of two of my AEI colleagues, Arthur Brooks and Charles Murray, though neither of them is otherwise responsible for what follows. Arthur Brooks has written a book about happiness, interviewed the Dalai Lama and Sri Sri Ravi Shankar on the topic of human flourishing, and launched a new AEI project on this very subject. It may seem odd that a think tank noted mainly for its emphasis on economic policy in the service of freedom and prosperity should now be thinking about the meaning of life and how it can be well lived. But freedom and prosperity, good though they be, are finally just means to a higher and more fulfilling end, the goal of human happiness or human flourishing. And I, for one, welcome the explicit addition of this concern to AEI's portfolio. Yet the nature of human flourishing is and always has been a a contested subject. Karl Marx and Sigmund Freud disagree both with Plato and the Bible and with each other. Conflicting beliefs about human flourishing, often as in ages past religiously inspired, still provoke many of the major battles now engulfing the globe. And yet we Americans look on with amazement. Our modern liberalism, which celebrates an individual's right to choose his own path to happiness, was a direct response to such bloody religious wars, fought over who had the right answer about how the human soul best flourishes. So successful has liberalism been that one now risks ridicule, if not calumny, for raising in all seriousness the question, what is a good life for a human being? especially if it is asked in a wisdom-seeking manner, as if the answer should matter not just to me, but also for you. Never afraid of ridicule and calumny, Charles Murray has explicitly tackled the subject, publishing for young people the curmudgeon's guide to getting ahead, do's and don'ts of right behavior, tough thinking, clear writing, 
and living a good life. In his final piece of advice about living a good life, Murray tells the young to watch the movie Groundhog Day as a more enjoyable but perfectly good substitute for reading Aristotle's ethics. <laughs> Long a favorite of his, which he would prefer that they read, that is the ethics, but doubts that they will. This claim woke me from my slumber. I admire the movie, which I have seen a few times, but is its teaching the same as that of the Nicomachean Ethics? A book, by the way, that I have taught more than a dozen times, usually over 20 weeks, four hours a week. I decided to have another look at the ethics to try to boil down what it has to teach, both about human flourishing and human excellence and about their interrelation. I will leave it to you and to Charles to decide whether Groundhog Day is an adequate substitute. Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics is perhaps the most famous and influential book of ethics in the Western philosophical tradition, best known for its teachings of, about human virtue or excellence, which appears at first glance to be its dominant theme. Of the ten books of the ethics, all but the first and last are about human excellence and its opposites about virtue and vice. Books two through five are about the virtues or excellences of character, both noble and just, how they are acquired and what they are. Book six is about practical wisdom and the other virtues or excellences of intellect. Books eight and nine are about that quasi-excellence of heart and mind, friendship. And book seven is largely about that very common falling short of excellence, incontinence, in which we know the good, but out of moral weakness, fail to pursue it. But Aristotle's ethics is not about virtue or excellence for its own sake. Its overarching concern is human happiness, human flourishing, the explicit subject of books 1 and 10 with which the ethics begins and ends. The comprehensive question and concern of the ethics is quite simply how to live, or better, how to live well, excellently, flourishingly. It is a question that commands the attention of every serious person, and Aristotle's treatment of the subject has for centuries commanded the attention of thoughtful readers, religious and secular, scholars and statesmen. Preeminent Christian, Jewish, and Muslim thinkers, Thomas Aquinas, Maimonides, and Averroes and Al-Farabi have embraced much of what Aristotle had to say. When given the book to read late in his life, Winston Churchill declared upon finishing it, why, this is what I have always thought. <laughs> a book having such endorsements, one would think, deserves our attention. And yet, in my experience, most beginning students do not take well to the ethics. I remember well my own reaction when, nearly 60 years ago, as a college sophomore, I read it for the first time. I found it abstract, boring, and irrelevant. True, we read only part of the book and from a bad translation that made Aristotle seem like a wooden pedant, and as I recall, my teacher was uninspiring. Nevertheless, I now know that I was mainly to blame. I was too young, too shallow, not ready. Aristotle himself warns the reader near the beginning of the ethics that his book is not intended for the young and inexperienced or for those who are badly brought up. And he tells us at the end that it will be by and large useless for those who do not already have a longing for the noble and the good. He knows that he has nothing persuasive to say to those who envy tyrants like Stalin and Saddam Hussein 
or playboys like Hugh Hefner or Donald Trump. Yet whenever teaching the ethics, I invite anyone who is too young, too inexperienced in life, too ruled by his passions, or merely badly brought up to drop the course and find something more suitable, no one ever leaves. This is is not surprising. Indeed, the book has probably always been read mainly by the young. But to read it well and with profit, they had to pretend or imagine that they read with mature minds and with the sensibilities of the well-brought-up. Today, I suspect fewer readers are willing and able to engage in such self-flattering exercises, especially to learn from a book by a long-dead Greek-white male whose wisdom, if any, is no longer current. Today, we face special challenges in reading the ethics, and we might as well be honest about them. First, living in democratic times, we have trouble forgiving Aristotle for not being a Democrat who celebrates equality and for not flattering the reader's complacent confidence in his own goodness and happiness. Second, living under a liberal, that is to say, freedom-loving regime, we bridle at the suggestion that ethics is a branch of politics, meaning that teachings about the good life are decisively shaped by the character of the regime and what it looks up to, rather than being the product of that spontaneous private choice made by each of us entirely on our own. Third, thinking we know what a book about ethics should read like, we are perplexed by Aristotle's dialectical manner and his failure to offer foolproof arguments and syllogistic demonstrations. Finally, and most difficult of all, Having embraced the new absolute of moral relativism, who's to say what's good or bad? All values are subjective, both culturally and personally relative. We will resist tooth and nail any suggestion that there really is a better and worse way to answer the question, how to live in order to live well. Let's not beat around the bush. With such cultural prejudices, it will be difficult, if not impossible, to learn anything of value from Aristotle. My short answer to these difficulties is, it's your loss. My long answer, too long for tonight, would be a carefully guided 20-week reading of the book, trying to make sense of what Aristotle says and means, and considering just why it might be true and important. For tonight, I will try instead to persuade you in two different ways, to suspend your disbelief and to entertain the possibility that Aristotle's ethics might be offering us the deepest truths about human life and its flourishing. First, I will draw on my own long experience of reading the book and discuss some important insights to which it has led me. Second, I will take up one of the most famous chapters in the ethics and by some close reading and a concrete example, try to overcome your prejudices against it. First part is Aristotelian insights about human flourishing and human excellence. Almost 50 years ago, some eight years after I left college, I read the ethics seriously for the first time in the company of my closest friend, and this reading changed the way I looked at life. Why did I read the ethics? Because I had acquired some questions about morality. On what does it really rest? How can it withstand the challenge of moral relativism? Unlike many of you, I have never seriously doubted that some things really are better than others, that some actions are just or noble, while others are unjust or base. But could my intuitions be defended, grounded, vindicated? 
Some experiences led me to doubt my enlightenment faith in human perfectibility brought about by reason and science, and Rousseau's first discourse had shocked me by insisting that the cultivation of reason in the form of progress in the arts and sciences necessarily resulted in moral decay. I thus turned to Aristotle hoping to find there a demonstrative rational science of ethics issuing in rules or principles of right conduct universally valid and rationally defensible that could be successfully applied in practice. I found there instead a different book, dialectical, not demonstrative, an account not of rules and principles, but of lives and characters, better and worse. I found that Aristotle knew all about the challenge of what we call cultural relativism, but that he was able to set down some impregnable defenses against it. Indeed, one could say that the entire ethics is an answer to the relativist difficulty enunciated near the start of Book One, that what men call noble and just differs from place to place, so much so that people think they exist not by nature, but only by arbitrary human agreement. In short, I found an entirely new way of thinking about ethics and many important insights for thinking about how to live. I will mention briefly 10 of them as they occur from front to back of the book. Though I offer them only as truths I have learned from the text, I will try to weave them together to give something of an overview of the whole book. First, the three lives. Everyone agrees, says Aristotle early in book one, that the ultimate goal that we seek in life is happiness, eudaimonia, but people disagree about its meaning or content. Discerning their opinions from the way they actually live, Aristotle distinguishes three kinds of human beings whose lives embrace three different understandings of what happiness might be. The many live as if happiness were having fun and amusing oneself. The refined and ambitious people, especially the political types, live as if happiness were honor or recognition for their personal excellence or achievement. And third, some rare people, not discussed until Book 10, live as if happiness consists in learning and seeking wisdom in philosophizing. Please note, the most revealing distinctions among human beings are not race, class, and gender. Neither should we understand the most basic differences among human beings in terms of wealth or power or culture. Rather, human beings are fundamentally distinguished according to the ruling passion of their souls, a passion for fun or pleasure, a passion for honor or recognition, a passion for knowledge or wisdom. Most people are primarily lovers of pleasures. Some people are primarily lovers of victory and honor. A few people are lovers of understanding. In passing, Aristotle notes that there appears to be a fourth kind of life, the life of money-making, embraced by those whose ruling passion is for wealth. But, let it be said at AEI, Aristotle shows that the life devoted to making money cannot be the humanly flourishing life inasmuch as money is but an instrumental good, a mere means, useful because it can buy pleasures or bring honor or power, or because it is a tool for acting and living well, differently defined. Ever since I learned from Aristotle this distinction of the three or four lives, I have found it enormously helpful in understanding the people that I meet. Second, happiness is activity. Happiness, according to Aristotle, is not just contentment. Indeed, it is not a feeling or an emotion at all, but rather an activity. 
The ordinary Greek word that we translate as happiness, eudaimonia, begins to make this clear. It would be better translated as human flourishing, an enviable way of living and being, approaching blessedness. You, well, daimon, demon, or divinity, the suffix ia, ness, eudaimonia, well, demonedness, suggests a condition of high flourishing that for pre-philosophical Greeks meant that the one who flourishes lives under the tutelage or protection of a benevolent daimon or deity. But unlike those who would equate human flourishing with mere prosperity, Aristotle insists that it is not the possession of some external good, like wealth or rank or honor, or of some internal good, like beauty or health, or even some unused virtue, but rather is synonymous with activity, with activity of the soul, activity of the human soul as human. We human beings flourish when we are at work, not when we are asleep, not even when we wish or plan to be at work. A basketball player as basketball player flourishes only during the game, the statesman as statesman only when actively engaged in governing, the musician only when making music, the thinker only when thinking. Flourishing is activity, and the better we engage in the activity and the more it engages us to the core of our being, the fuller is our flourishing. It is just as the man says. The human good is a being at work, an activity of the soul in accordance with excellence, and if there is more than one excellence, in accordance with the best and most complete. More succinctly, human flourishing is souling well, is humaning excellently. Third, the distinction between intellectual and ethical virtue. But if happiness is souling or humaning excellently, what kind of excellence is involved? Aristotle is the first to have recorded the difference between the excellences of mind and the excellence of character, that is, between intellectual or and ethical or moral virtue. Although it turns out that some excellence of mind is necessary for the highest excellence of character, one cannot be supremely ethically virtuous if one is not prudent or practically wise, and although some moral virtue is indispensable for improving the intellect, no one strung out or drugs or addicted to booze can learn very much, Aristotle's distinction makes a great deal of sense out of our life and the human world. We all know very intelligent, even learned and brilliant men and women who are licentious or cowardly or dishonest. And we know very decent and even admirable human beings who are by and large ignorant. In most of our dealings in life, we are far better off in the company of men and women of ethical virtue who know nothing of mathematics or physics or philosophy or theology than we are in the company of geniuses who have been badly reared. As C.S. Lewis puts it, quote, I had sooner play cards against a man who was quite skeptical about ethics but bred to believe that gentlemen do not cheat than against an irreproachable moral philosopher who had been brought up by sharpers. <laughs> of course, excellences of mind and character can be found in the same human being. Perry Mason, that brilliant lawyer of the utmost integrity, was said to be sharp as a steel trap, intellectual virtue, and clean as a hound's tooth, ethical virtue. It is perhaps to increase the likelihood of such coincidence that Aristotle insists that students of this book should already be well brought up 
and that he postpones the discussion of the intellectual virtues until he has had spent until he has spent half the book emphasizing the ethical ones. Fourth, ethical virtue means fine character. But what exactly is ethical or moral excellence? Unlike many modern writers on ethics, Aristotle understands that the moral virtues are states of soul and not only states of mind. Many people who adhere mentally to the right propositions or maxims turn out not to have them incorporated into the grain of their being. I'm not just talking about hypocrites who say one thing but do another. I'm talking about the fact that moral excellence is primarily a matter of the heart, of the state of our desires, the shape of our wishes, the direction of our intentions. Accordingly, Aristotle's ethics is not an ethics of rules and commandments, of thou shalt's and thou shalt not's, of right propositions, maxims, faith, or values. Rather, it is about that most peculiar grown-togetherness of heart and mind we call someone's character. Character is not temperament, the natural or physical disposition of the soul. Temperament, literally do-mixing, is a term from medieval physiology which taught that the varying mixtures of the four cardinal bodily humors, bile, phlegm, blood, and black bile, determined the basic natural psychic constitution, choleric, phlegmatic, sanguine, melancholic. This humoral theory is in deserved disrepute, but we all know people of such varying natural temperaments which are often discernible even in infancy. Neither is character personality a term we use to describe the non-intellectual aspects of the people we meet. Personality, from persona mask, is that mask to the world by which we are identified. We say someone has a nice personality, makes a good impression, is cheerful and easy to get along with, fits in well. But here we are mostly talking about veneered surfaces and mere appearances. Character, by contrast, refers to what is truly at the center, to the shape of the inner soul itself. It is primarily a matter of the orientation and disposition of our power of choosing, a power at once appetitive and mindful. It is a matter of both our loves and hates, and also of our discernment, our perspicacity, and our ability to find the way and to move ourselves toward that which we love as best and right. When I was younger, I associated mainly with those who shared my so-called values and my opinions about the world. Time has taught me that many of them were unreliable when the chips are down, and when courage or self-restraint or generosity or fairness or self-sacrifice were required. Today, I'm always on the lookout for fine character, which never disappoints. Fifth, habituation and habit. But how does fine character develop? How does the choosing power become excellent? The power of choice, Aristotle teaches, is perfected by habituation in choosing well, by repeated actions that accord with what the practically wise would say and do. Many rationalists in ethics, from the sophists of old to professors of philosophy today, believe that you can make people good by speeches and reasoning. Because they believe that the major obstacle to right conduct is poor thinking and unclarity of mind, they spend all of their attention analyzing moral argumentation and trying to develop philosophical principles of ethics. Today, ethics is a theoretical subject whose conclusions one is then supposed to apply to practice. 
But if the center of the moral life is not reason but character, if the center of character is choice, and if central to choice is not only thought and opinion, but also the habits of the heart, one sees that the development of character and of the most reliable characters comes only through the gradual process of forming one's power to choose into a firm disposition. It may seem circular to say that one comes to be courageous only by acting courageously, but that's just the way it is. So, for example, it is only as a result of facing the things we fear that we gradually acquire, in the best case, the disposition to fear as and when and how much we ought and only what we ought to fear, and we will act accordingly. The Greek word for habit or disposition is hexis, meaning a having or a holding. A habit is a holding of oneself, a holding fast of oneself, now and in the future. It is an established disposition, a firm bearing or posture toward fear, pleasure, pain, anger, lust, or the love of money and honor. A virtuous habit is not something enslaving, but an acquired freedom. It is an acquired self-rule, in the absence of which we are slave to the passions and the undisciplined impulses that overtake us. Six, the noble. But what is the good use, what is, sorry, what is the good or use of these excellences of character? We come next to perhaps the most remarkable feature of Aristotle's ethical teaching. Aristotle is neither a moralist like Kant, nor a utilitarian like Hobbes or Mill or most Americans, virtually the only two schools of moral thought we know about today. Unlike the moralists, Aristotle does not say that morality is a thing of absolute worth or that the virtuous man does the right thing in order to adhere to a moral rule. Conversely, unlike the utilitarians, he does not say that morality is good because it is useful for civic peace or for private gain or reputation. Although he knows that ethical virtue is useful, he never, ever talks about its utility. Most striking in this regard is the discussion of courage, the one virtue whose end and justification must have something to do with preserving and defending the city. Yet the city is never mentioned in the entire discussion of courage. Aristotle says over and over again that the ethically virtuous man acts for the sake of the noble. The noble in Greek kalon means the beautiful, the fine, the resplendent, not only in body but also and especially in soul. The man of fine character seeks to display his own fineness in word and deed, to show the harmony of his soul and the rightness of his choice in the doing of graceful and gracious deeds. The beauty or nobility of his action has little to do with the cause that his action will serve or the benefits that will accrue to himself or another, though there will often be such benefits. It has rather everything to do with showing forth in action the beautiful soul at work, the way a fine dancer dances for the sake of dancing finely. As the ballerina both exploits and resists the downward pull of gravity to rise freely and gracefully above it, so the person of ethical virtue exploits and elevates the necessity of our embodied existence to act freely and gracefully above their downward pull. There are thus two connected aspects to the noble, one inner, one outward. Inwardly, there is freedom from enslavement to the things that weigh us down, like bodily desires or love of money and honor. 
Outwardly, this inner freedom from permits an active freedom for, a freedom to act in a seemly and fitting and gracious manner, often with benefit to others. The outer display and action manifests the inner state of soul, but goes beyond it by putting it into action. The outer display, the showing forth, is a beautiful being at work, the activity of the harmonious or excellent soul, a species of human flourishing. Aristotle, we observe, does not make a sharp boundary between the moral and the aesthetic. Indeed, as the emphasis on the noble suggests, the ethical turns out to be a species of the aesthetic, as virtuous conduct shines forth in deeds beautiful to behold. In this I find him right on target. Consider, for example, the problem of the hostess and the handicapped guest. Anyone who has thought about can figure out the maxim, be helpful without causing embarrassment. But it is exceedingly hard to do this well, and very few people can do it perfectly. Yet if we have learned how to look, we also know it when we see it. We know immediately both that it has been well done and that it is beautiful. We admire the freedom, the grace, the tact, the just rightness, indeed the beauty of the action of a beautiful soul at work. An important part of Aristotle's answer to the relativist's challenge consists in his presentation of what I call the Museum of the Virtues, the virtues of nobility presented in books three and four, courage, moderation, liberality, magnificence, greatness of soul, ambition, gentleness, friendliness, truthfulness, and wit. By polishing off pictures of each of these virtues and placing them between two corresponding vices, Aristotle, not by argument, but by showing, gives us direct and immediate experience of seeing the humanly beautiful. Anyone who cannot see that courage is more beautiful than cowardice or, and rashness, or that liberality is more beautiful than miserliness and prodigality, suffers, one might say, from the moral equivalent of colorblindness. Seventh, the centrality of prudence. But even if one loves and seeks to act nobly, how can we discern exactly what that means in any given circumstance? A noble, loving heart is not enough. It needs help from a sharp mind. Though the beginnings of ethical virtue lie in habituation starting in our youth, and though the core of moral virtue is the right shaping of our loves and hates by means of praise and blame, blame reward and punishment, the perfection of character finally cannot do without a certain perfection of mind. Aristotle's ethics is famous also for teaching the indispensable, indispensability of prudence or practical wisdom, phronesis, for the supreme sort of ethical virtue. Strictly speaking, one cannot be ethically good unless one is also practically wise. Prudence is to begin with the ability to deliberate well about means to ends but it also involves an intuitive grasp of the goodness of the ends that one is seeking, as well as those myriad particulars of each human situation that enables the prudent man to seek and find the best possible action under the circumstances, even if it is a far cry from the best simply. Prudence is not mere shrewdness or cleverness. Just as one cannot be ethically excellent without being practically wise, so one cannot be practically wise unless one is ethically excellent. If it is not tied down to the noble and just ends that the virtuous man has been habituated to love, 
the soul's native power of cleverness can lead to the utmost knavery. On the other hand, the good intention of a lover of the noble can lead to equally bad results through well-intentioned foolishness. We today are inclined to praise as excellent one or the other of two human types. The utilitarians will praise the shrewd and cunning man who knows how to get what he wants. The moralists will praise the man of goodwill, the well-intentioned, good-hearted fellow who wants to do good, even if he is a bumbler and frequently gets it wrong. These views, Aristotle shows us, are both mistaken. The highest excellence of a man of action requires both that his intentions be good and that his judgment be sound. Moreover, the man of practical wisdom is not a slave to abstract principles or rules of conduct, to ideals or doctrines. Because of the diverse circumstances and utter particularity of all the choices we make in our lives, the prudent man knows that virtue really consists in finding and enacting the best possible thing to do here and now in the light of the circumstances. He is truly a man for all seasons and for all occasions. Eighth, friendship. The human being is not just a citizen, and human life comprises more than action in the affairs of the city. There is also private life, in which other aspects of our natural humanity are realized and perfected. Central among these is our capacity for love and friendship. Aristotle's Ethics is the only major work of ethics in the Western tradition that devotes so much attention, one-fifth of the whole, to the massively important and wonderful human phenomenon of friendship. Not erotic or sexual love, but friendship. That lifelong being together of souls that overcomes as much as is possible the isolation and separation of human beings. For present purposes, two of his insights are here worthy of mention. First, most of the people we call our friends are merely friends of utility or pleasure in which the friend is not loved on account of his goodness or for his own sake. But the only true and lasting kind of friendship is of the latter sort, the friendship based on virtue. So it behooves anyone interested in durable friendships to look hard at the people they now think of as their friends, to see what exactly it is that draws them together, and to be on the lookout for good and lovable friends who could be theirs for a lifetime. But what kind of friends are these likely to be? This is shown in the second insight. Considering all the various kinds of activities that friends do together, Aristotle argues his way to the true conclusion that the most durable, most equal, most intimate, and most rewarding kind of friendship is the friendship of sharing speeches and thoughts, or in other words, the philosophical friendship of mutual learning. For speech and thought, both activities of the highest order are the only true, truly shareable things in the world, the only things in which my having them doesn't preclude your having them. Indeed, my having them, excuse me, indeed, my having more of them usually means that you too will have more of them as well. Here, let me just point out a most magnificent feature of the structure and rhetoric of the entire book. Aristotle's argument for the superiority of the philosophical friendship made in Book 9, Chapter 9, draws additional evidence for itself from the very act of reading and discussing the book. For Aristotle's ethics is, in my view, an act of Aristotelian friendship for the willing reader. From the very start, Aristotle has been inviting us to reflect and examine ourselves, 
to consider our socially constructed humanity and to ponder the human soul beneath it. Thus, when in describing the friendship of sharing speeches and thoughts, he points out the delight we have in the activity of sensing and thinking, and especially the delight in self-awareness, in learning about our own aliveness and sharing it with a friend, we can experience exactly what he is describing. For this remark comes on the heels of nine books in which our friend Aristotle has been leading us to just such deeper self-knowledge. We are thus inclined to believe him about the friendship of sharing speeches and thoughts precisely because we have experienced for ourselves the truth of what he, is, what he is telling us throughout our reading of the text and most dramatically at this highest point. Ninth, pleasure. These remarks about the delights of friendship lead directly to an important conclusion about pleasure, a topic that recurs throughout the ethics and that is the subject of two short thematic treatments at the end of Book 7 and at the start of Book 10. Pleasure is not, as was said in fir at the first, bad. On the contrary, pleasure is good. Pleasure is integral to happiness, yet pleasure alone is not happiness. Pleasure bears a deep relation to activity on which it is dependent. When we are active without impediment, when everything goes with the grain and nothing obstructs, when the soul is at work excellently, pleasure just comes as a supervening and unbought grace. And to use Aristotle's lovely image, quote, like the bloom of youth grazing, gracing those who are healthy and in their prime. Although he is finally a spokesman for pleasure, Aristotle is not a hedonist. Indeed, he offers the best argument against hedonism, the shallow and always prevalent view that relies regards pleasure as homogeneous and pleasure as the good. Aristotle shows us that because pleasures are derived from and tied to activities, they differ in kind and in quality. And he enables us to see that we do not want the pleasure without the activity, but rather we want the activity. We do not want the pleasure of playing baseball without playing baseball, the pleasure of listening to music without the music, the pleasure of having learned without knowing anything. Pleasure follows in the wake of activity and, as it were, lights it up into consciousness. But without the activity, there is and can be no happiness. Disconnected pleasure, safe from out of a bottle or a syringe, is only a fraudulent substitute. Aristotle, and only Aristotle, can refute hedonism without embracing suffering or self-denial. Tenth, the life of learning. Which activity of soul goes to the depth of our being and accordingly offers us the highest pleasure? According to Aristotle, it is the life of learning in pursuit of wisdom. Though very few human beings are capable of living the philosophical life, our friend, the author of the Nicomachean Ethics, has led us gradually to an ever-deepening self-reflection in which we have tasted some of the delights of the pursuit of wisdom about ourselves and about the world in which we find ourselves. Having awakened powers of mind and thought and introduced us to the joys of insight, um, sorry, he has awakened powers of mind and thought and introduced us to the joys of insight. The reason that a discussion of the philosophical life is deferred to the end of the ethics is now clear. For to, for to, for to, to praise it at the beginning would strike us like an advertisement to eat in a restaurant somewhere in Tashkent. 
But by gradually giving us through the book our life to live over again in thought, by showing us both its ground and its perplexities and contradictions, and by inviting us to look yet more deeply into ourselves and our world, Aristotle provides us an appetizer from that wonderful restaurant in which everything thinkable is on the menu. We cannot, most of us, devote our lives to philosophizing, but thanks to the blessings of freedom and the possibility of education that our wonderful country has provided us, all of us can exercise our intellects thoughtfully and in search of greater wisdom, and thus participate partially in that aspect of human flourishing, which is philosophizing. A proper reading of Aristotle's ethics proves also that happiness is an activity of our souls as thoughtful. The second big part. Greatness of soul, the peak of moral nobility. Despite this ringing endorsement of the excellent activity that is liberal education in pursuit of wisdom, I want to return to the virtues of character, the major preoccupation of the ethics. As we here at AEI are interested in politics and leadership, I would like to confront a democratic prejudice that keeps most modern readers from appreciating the peak of human excellence in the realm of action. Among the ethical virtues discussed in the first five books of the ethics, there are two peaks. Greatness of soul, megalopsuchia, also called high-mindedness or magnanimity, and general or universal justice. What is true of these two virtues and not of the others is that each of them is said explicitly to include all of the others. But they differ in this way. Greatness of soul is that aspect of complete ethical virtue seen as the perfection of the human being in himself, whereas justice is that aspect of complete ethical virtue seen as the perfection of the human being in his relation to others within the order of the political community. In greatness of soul, one is looking at the perfected soul of the agent. In justice, one is looking at the fittingness of his deeds to what the law, the city, and his fellow human beings require. Only in the best city or polis will the great-souled man and the just man be one and the same. Let us consider the great-souled man. In Aristotle's ethics, greatness of soul is a singular virtue. It is the only virtue with soul in its name. Recalling the definition of happiness as souling excellently, we see that if great souling were all complete excellent souling, then the activity of the great-souled man might be the most complete sort of human flourishing. Yet greatness of soul is the one virtue on Aristotle's list that none of us would have put on a list of our own. Indeed, most of my students find the great-souled man hard to take, obnoxious at best, vicious at worst. They resent his disdain for lesser folk, they dislike his cool aloofness, and they probably proudly assert that they wouldn't want to have dinner with him, without considering, of course, that the feeling might be mutual. <laughs> but the critique of greatness of soul has a venerable pedigree. It was almost certainly about greatness of soul seen as noble pride that St. Augustine said, quote, the virtues of the pagans are splendid vices, unquote. Can greatness of soul be a virtue? And how and in what way is it good? Let's look more closely at Aristotle's treatment. As in almost any discussion of a given matter, Aristotle starts from common opinion only to refine that opinion in, into the truer opinion toward which it points. Here is his beginning. Quote, 
It is believed that great soul is the one who deems himself worthy of great things and is worthy of them, unquote. It's almost a direct quotation of what Alcibiades says on the eve of the uh, Sicilian expedition. Um, The one who thinks he is worthy of much but in fact deserves little is vain and foolish. The one who thinks he is less worthy than he is is small-souled. The great thing that the great-souled man claims for himself is honor, said to be the greatest of the external political goods. Quote, that which, that which we assign to the gods and which is most aimed at by those in high rank. Honor, time in Greek, means not only recognition, but also office, just as our politicians say when elected, thank you for the honor you have bestowed upon me. Moreover, because honor is the best thing a city can offer a human being, this virtue will show how the best of human beings stands with respect to the city. Having begun with common opinion, Aristotle now starts to refine it. He moves from the vulgar emphasis on claiming honor and office to his own preoccupation, the being deserving. There are three successive rising formulations of Aristotle's emphasis on merit. First, I quote, the great-souled man, if indeed he is to be worthy of the greatest things, must be the best man. Therefore, it is necessary that one who is truly great-souled be good, and greatness in each of the virtues would seem to be characteristic of the great-souled man, unquote. Not only does he possess all of the other moral virtues, but he possesses them in a superlative degree, for only on these grounds would he be deserving of the highest honor. This leads to the second rise, quote, greatness of soul then seems to be like a certain crowning ornament, a cosmos of the virtues, for it makes them greater and does not come to be without them. Therefore, it is hard to be truly great-souled, for it is not possible without perfect gentlemanship, kalokagathia, from kalos noble and agathos good. What exactly is the crown, this crown or cosmos of the other virtues? It is a kind of noble pride resting on a proper self-awareness of one's own true moral excellence and manifesting itself in conduct that rests on the accuracy of this self-awareness. The great-souled man acts and holds himself in relation to knowing and esteeming his own capacity for great and excellent action. Knowing himself to be outstanding, he seeks to do the greatest deeds commensurate with his own great excellence. And as a result of this attitude, his other virtues are augmented by being put into activity as they are unified in him. With this refinement of the popular notion of the virtue, Aristotle next looks at how the truly great-souled man stands with respect to honor. It turns out that the truly great-souled man doesn't really care very much for honor, for, and this is the third rise, quote, there can be no honor worthy of all complete or all-perfect virtue. Yes, he will accept honor if it comes from a worthy source, partly to show that he does not care all that much for it. For to reject honor, no less than to seek or claim it, is to honor honor more than it deserves. In the end, honor, like all other external goods dependent on fortune, is to the truly great-souled man a petty thing. In fact, the virtue of greatness of soul finally consists in disdain for or indifference to the external rewards of virtue as well as other vicissitudes of fortune. This highest temptation of the virtuous man is conquered in his peak and crowning virtue. 
external honor is unnecessary as proof of the goodness for the man who is and knows that he is truly good. Freed from the enslavement to the love of honor and the opinion of his fellow citizens, the great-souled man accepts high office when it comes his way in order to do great deeds as befits his perfect virtue. But you will not see him kissing babies or pandering to fashionable prejudice as honor-loving and often seek, office-seeking democratic politicians do these days. Such vulgar practices are beneath his dignity. The great-souled man comes very close to being entirely self-sufficient. Consider some of his traits. Everything he does, he does on a grand scale. There's nothing small or petty about him. He loves to benefit others, gives aids willingly, never asks for help. He's disdainful of the powerful, but he never lords it over the ordinary, being always courteous and measured in the presence of lesser people. He cares more for truth than opinion, refuses to flatter, and is open and frank. He bears no grudges, speaks and acts in the open, but is ironically self-deprecating when speaking to the many. He engages in no small talk or gossip. He is a lover of beautiful things. Because nothing is great to him, he does not wonder or marvel, except for this last matter, which suggests that his horizon is too limited. Who can fault him? He has all complete excellence. He is a unity, an ordered whole, a shining forth of human excellence and character, the embodiment of nobility. He goes, in a sense, in the place of a god, receiving what we usually reserve for the gods. At the very least, his existence, whether in fact or even only as an ideal type, inspires us by example to see ethical, human ethical perfection in the flesh, to show how what one peak of human flourishing would look like. Is it merely our democratic intolerance of real superiority, grounded in an ideological disbelief in genuine inequality and envy in its presence that makes him obnoxious to modern tastes? What's wrong with knowing how good you are and acting accordingly? if you are truly excellent. Shouldn't we admire and look up to such people? It turns out that we liberal Democrats living in this great commercial republic and enjoying our freedom, peace, and prosperity take too much for granted. There come times of crisis, and who knows when the next one will arrive, in which the survival of the community devoted to comfort, health, and safety depends on the virtue sorry, depends on the virtue of greater men who are devoted to something beyond comfort, health, and safety. In times of greatest crises, even egalitarians come to recognize the need for a great-souled man. In my living memory, the liberal democracies of the world experienced precisely such a crisis in the form of the threat of Nazi Germany. Hitler and his war machine were, were overrunning continental Europe and the flame of human freedom and decency was in danger of being snuffed out. Fortunately, dare one say providentially, a great-souled man was on hand to rally the still free nations against the tyrant, also providing hope for the defeated that they would be rescued and the flame of freedom would not die. As we go headlong into our next presidential sweepstakes, facing abroad different but equally fanatical and increasingly threatening enemies, it is useful to be reminded of what genuine and confident human greatness looks like in times of crisis. Permit me in closing to read two passages 
the first from Winston Churchill's Memoirs of the Second World War, from Chapter 17 of the volume entitled The Gathering Storm. May 10th, 1940. The morning of the 10th of May dawned, and with it came tremendous news. The Germans had struck their long-awaited blow. Holland and Belgium were both invaded. Their frontiers had been crossed at numerous points. The whole movement of the German army upon the evasion of the Low Countries and of France had begun. At about 10 o'clock, Sir Kingsley Wood came to see me, having just been with the Prime Minister. He told me that Mr. Chamberlain was inclined to feel that the great battle which had broken upon us made it necessary for him to remain at his post. Kingsley Wood had told him that, on the contrary, the new crisis made it all the more necessary to have a national government which alone could confront it, and he added that Mr. Chamberlain had accepted this view. At 11 o'clock, I was again summoned to Downing Street by the Prime Minister. There once more I found Lord Halifax. We took our seats at the table opposite Mr. Chamberlain. He told us that he was satisfied that it was beyond his power to form a national government. The response he had received from the labor leaders left him in no doubt of this. The question, therefore, was whom he should advise the king to send for after his own resignation had been accepted. His demeanor was cool, unruffled, and seemingly quite detached from the personal aspect of the affair. He looked at us both across the table. I have had many important interviews in my public life, and this was certainly the most important. Usually I talk a great deal, but on this occasion I was silent. Mr. Chamberlain evidently had in, my, in his mind the stormy scene in the House of Commons two nights before when I seemed to be in such a heated controversy with the Labour Party. Although this had been in his support and defense, he nevertheless felt that it might be an obstacle to my obtaining their adherence at this juncture. I do not recall the actual words he used, but this was the implication. His biographer, Mr. Failing, states definitely that he preferred Lord Halifax. As I remained silent, a very long pause ensued. It certainly seemed longer than the two minutes which one observes in the commencement of Armistice Day. Then at length, Halifax spoke. He said that he felt that his position as a peer out of the House of Commons would make it very difficult for him to discharge the duties of Prime Minister in a war like this. He would be held responsible for everything, but would not have the power to guide the assembly upon whose confidence the life of every government depended. He spoke for some minutes in this sense, and by the time he had finished, it was clear that the duty would fall upon me, had in fact fallen upon me. Then for the first time, I spoke. I said I would have no communication with either of the opposition parties until I had the king's commission to form a government. On this, the momentous conversation came to an end, and we reverted to our ordinary, easy, and familiar manners of men who had worked for years together and whose lives in and out of office had been spent in all the friendliness of British politics. A little later in the day. Presently, a message arrived summoning me to the palace at 6 o'clock. He arrives. I was taken immediately to the king. His Majesty received me most graciously and bade me sit down. He looked at me searchingly and quizzically for some moments and then said, I suppose you don't know why I've sent for you. Adopting his mood, I replied, Sir, I simply couldn't imagine why. He laughed and said, I want to ask you to form a government, 
I said I would certainly do so. The king had made no stipulation about the government being national in character, and I felt that my commission was in no formal way dependent upon this point. But in view of what had happened and the conditions with which had led to Mr. Chamberlain's resignation, a government of national character was obviously inherent in the situation. I told the king that I would immediately send for the leaders of the labor and liberal parties, that I proposed to form a war cabinet of five or six ministers, and that I hoped to let him have at least five names before midnight. On this, I took my leave and returned to the Admiralty. Later this night, after the cabinet, the war cabinet has been formed, and this is the passage um, for which I am reading. Thus, then, on the night of the 10th of May, at the outset of this mighty battle, I had acquired the chief power in this state, which henceforth I wielded in ever-growing measure for five years and three months of the war, at the end of which time, all of our enemies having surrendered unconditionally or being about to do so, I was immediately dismissed by the British electorate from all further conduct of their affairs. <laughs> During these last crowded days of the political crisis, my pulse had not quickened at any moment. I took it all as it came. But I cannot conceal from the reader of this truthful account that as I went to bed at about 3 a.m., I was conscious of a profound sense of relief. At last, I had the authority to give directions over the whole scene. I felt as if I were walking with destiny and that all my past life had been but a preparation for this hour and for this trial. Eleven years in the political wilderness had freed me from ordinary party antagonisms. My warnings over the last six years had been so numerous, so detailed, and were now so terribly vindicated that no one could gainsay me. I could not be reproached either for making the war or for want of preparation for it. I thought I knew a good deal about it all, and I was sure I should not fail. Therefore, although impatient for the morning, I slept soundly and had no need for cheering dreams. Facts are better than dreams. This coming Saturday, January the 24th, will be the 50th anniversary of Winston Churchill's death. Britain and the world mourned. And um, I invite those of you who have not seen this, go on Google, um, Google F Churchill's funeral. Check the longest YouTube videotape of this funeral and wait until the end to see one of the most moving scenes. I won't spoil it for you. Go watch it. Uh, the scene of Churchill's funeral. There are three or four such videos. The day after Churchill died, a great teacher of political science and a profound student of Aristotle's ethics, Leo Strauss began his class at the University of Chicago with the following impromptu remarks with which I shall at long last conclude. The death of Churchill is a healthy reminder to students of political science of their limitations, the limitations of their craft. The tyrant stood at the pinnacle of his power. The contrast between the indomitable and magnanimous statesman and the insane tyrant. This spectacle in its clear simplicity was one of the greatest lessons which men can learn at any time. No less enlightening is the lesson conveyed by Churchill's failure, which is too great to be called tragedy. I mean the fact that Churchill's heroic action on behalf of human freedom against Hitler 
only contributed through no fault of Churchill's to increase the threat to freedom which is posed by Stalin and his successors. Churchill did the utmost that a man could do to counter that threat publicly and most visibly in Greece and in Fulton, Missouri, um, the Iron Curtain speech. Not a whit less important than his deeds and speeches are his writings, above all his Marlborough, the greatest historical work written in our century, an inexhaustible mine of political wisdom and understanding which should be required reading for every student of political science. The death of Churchill reminds us of the limitations of our craft and therewith of our duty. We have no higher duty and no more pressing duty than to remind ourselves and our students of political greatness, human greatness, and of the peaks of human excellence. For we are supposed to train ourselves and others in seeing things as they are. And this means, above all, in seeing their greatness and their misery, their excellence and their vileness, their nobility and their triumphs, and therefore never to mistake mediocrity, however brilliant, for true greatness. Thank you for listening to today's Bradley Lecture. I'm Wilson, and I surely hope you enjoyed it. Tune in to the AI Podcast channel for more, and be sure to review us and subscribe on your podcast player of choice. Until next time, we'll see you then.